You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church. We're located in the Ballston neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. Visit us on the web at cumcballston dot o-r-g. There you can learn more about our congregation, where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Good morning. morning. Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 39, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and as a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up and, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him, they were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, cleanse my heart, my lips, my mind, as you cleanse the lips of your prophet Isaiah with the burning coal, that I may preach your good news, not mine, and that your people will hear the good news in spite of my faults. Amen. What is a saint? Now, in the Christianity that I grew up in, saints had two basic characteristics. They were dead, and they were generally dead in a very unpleasant way. I was taught to hold these saints as ones who were holier than I could ever be. Now, the dancing saints of St. Gregory that we saw, that's a different vision of sainthood. That brings together all kinds of people, men and women, those from the times of the martyrs to today. And it brings together people of all different faiths, dancing with Jesus Christ. This is a new and very different type of saint for me. For the artist that created this fantastic tableau, 
these are people who lived a life that for that artist was a life lived in God. They're all different kinds of people. They come from different tribes and they come in different sizes and shapes and beliefs. It's a strange mix. What do they have in common? How can we call them saints? Each one of those 90 people have shown us a place where faith meets action. Each one of these is a person who with words or deeds or both show up to show us how to act in a holy way. And by a holy way, I mean to act as God would have them act. Somehow, in some way, each of these people did the right thing at the right time. And the fact that some are not Christian, that some follow a different doctrine or creed or right is beside the point. I never thought of saints that way before. I thought that Christians had a lock on sainthood. But there are Buddhists in that tableau and Muslims and maybe some professed agnostics and atheists. I just never thought that a saint could be a plain human being. And these 90 people are all plain human beings. What sets them apart is their teachers. They teach us, they teach you and me by word or deed or both who we are and what we can do in the world for God and for each other. To put it in a biblical perspective, these are people who bring their God, by whatever name they chose to call their God, into their everyday lives, and they bring God into their life. Now, when Pastor Sarah first told me about this sermon series and about using the dancing saints of St. Gregory as our backdrop, I was frankly surprised I had never thought about saints like this before. And we had a great deal of fun going through the booklet and seeing if we could identify who those saints were and what they were doing. I think, Barbara, you were with us. and you, We kept saying, where's the bear coming from? Now, at the time Pastor and I, Sarah and I talked about this sermon series, I was reading about a millennial blogger named Rachel Held Evans. She'd made a name for herself confronting and challenging the fundamental and conservative elements of American Christianity. That sounded like saint's work to me. So when Pastor Sarah asked me to preach on a saint of my choosing without a moment's hesitation, I said, Rachel Held Evans. Now then when Pastor Sarah asked for a scripture passage to go along with that, admit to being caught short. I still haven't gotten that Methodist idea that what we talk about should be scripturally based, but I found one. Actually, it came to me. It was the story in Acts where the apostles very bravely confront the authority. These men who were looked upon by the Sadducees and Pharisees as being ignorant because they didn't have a minister's degree. They weren't ordained so therefore they shouldn't be listened to. And these people were preaching and reading and interpreting scripture in a way that those who were ordained didn't like it. And I liked that Pharisees' common sense view. If they're doing God's work, we can't stop it. 
And if they're not doing God's work, don't worry about it, they'll lose. And that seemed to capture for me Rachel Held Evans. Our reading comes down to the apostles armed with the Holy Spirit going boldly into the very precincts of the established religious hierarchy into the temple to preach. And in their preaching to bluntly accuse the powers, the authorities, of ignoring scripture, of ignoring God's will, of being exclusive. The apostles were taking the gospel directly to power, and they were taking their interpretation of scripture and putting it up against the rigid formalism of their day. Rachel Held Evans, in her short life, spoke boldly to the powers and authorities of her church and left a legacy of her work that is of God. Now, Rachel Held Evans is not one of the 90 saints on that St. Gregory's ceiling. She was born too late for that. Rachel was a best-selling author who challenged conservative Christianity and gave voice to a generation of wandering evangelicals wrestling with their faith. And she knew what she was talking about. Rachel was born in 1981 in Alabama to Peter and Robin Held, who both belonged to the evangelical fundamentalist stream of Christianity. Hers was a loving household. Her father was an evangelical ordained minister. And until she was 14, she went to a private religious school where, as she tells it, she enjoyed studying and memorizing the Bible, vacation Bible school, and her youth activities. When she was 14, the family moved from Birmingham, Alabama to Dayton, Tennessee, so her father could work at Bryan College. Now, you probably haven't heard of Dayton, Tennessee, and you probably haven't heard of Bryan College. Dayton, Tennessee was where the Scopes Monkey Trial took place, that trial in the 1920s that pitted evolution against fundamental Christian inerrancy of the Bible. It pitted William Jennings Bryan in the defense of the Bible against Clarence Darrow, perhaps the leading atheist of his day. Any of you who've seen the play Inherit the Wind know the story. Bryan College was chartered in 1925 following the Scopes trial and named obviously after William Jennings Bryan. Rachel described Dayton as being the buckle of the Bible belt and you understand why. She grew up in that evangelical fundamentalist Christian tradition. She described it as a tradition founded on the inerrancy of scripture, a tradition that harbors a faith without doubt. Rachel, in one of her podcasts, describes what it was to grow up as a girl and into womanhood in that tradition. She talks about her pride in winning the best Christian attitude award in her school three years in a row and her description of how she plotted and schemed how to get that award, it's priceless. She talks, too, about memorizing biblical passages and about the contests they would have on biblical literacy, and about her male friends being sad that because, you know, she was a woman, she could never preach, in spite of the fact of how well she knew Scripture and how well she could articulate it. And she was okay with all of that. 
And in that childhood, she grew up with a love of scripture that never left her. She did not look back in anger at this, but looked back on it as formative to her years as a Christian. She was okay with that until as a freshman in Bryan College, she saw a television video clip that was being played right after the 9-11 tragedies. It was a clip about the Taliban. And in this clip, a woman who was accused of adultery was pulled out into the center of a large arena, a Muslim woman in a Muslim area of Afghanistan, pulled out into the arena and summarily shot. And Rachel saw this loop playing over and over again in the television, and she began to wonder about her beliefs. She'd been raised, you see, to believe that this young woman who was not a Christian, who had never heard probably of Jesus Christ and certainly never had an opportunity to be baptized, was in hell, damned for all time. And Rachel could not and would not believe that. And that began her time of questioning and finding out that in her community, to question faith and scripture was to be ignored. Her people just did not want to talk to her about her growing questions about the Bible and what it meant and how it was being used. As she reports it, they were very polite, but they were not helping her through her crisis of faith. She was enjoined to pray harder and to accept God's word. So, being a millennial, she did what millennials do. She went to the blogosphere and to Twitter, and she began to write. Rachel became known for challenging traditional, and that means largely male, and conservative authority. She would spar with evangelical men on Twitter and through her blog, debating them on everything from human sexuality to politics to the role of women in society and the church to biblical inerrancy. However, and this from one of her principal antagonists, she debated and argued with them always in love and without anger or rancor. As one of her biographers put it, Rachel's spiritual journey and unique writing voice fostered a community of believers who yearned to see God and challenge conservative Christian groups that they felt were often exclusionary. Her congregation was a congregation that was online, and her Twitter feed became her church, a gathering place for thousands to question, find safety in their doubts, and learn to believe in new ways from this woman who was never ordained. Her first book is titled, Faith Unraveled, How a Girl Who Knew All the Answers Learned to Ask Questions. She originally had titled that book, Evolving in Monkey Town, but found out that very few people got the joke, so she changed the title. Faith Unraveled traces her evolution from religious certainty, like Brian's, to a faith that left room for doubt. Her second book, and probably her best known, and a New York Times bestseller is titled Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church. It was a book that I found personally formative for me. Together, these two books, Faith Unraveled and Searching for Sunday, form an autobiography of coming to faith that's on a par with Augustine's Confessions and with Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. 
And trust me, she's a lot easier to read than both of those two gentlemen. And she had two other books. This one I haven't read, but I really want to. A Year of Biblical Womanhood, How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on Her Roof, Covering Her Head, and Calling Her Husband Master. In doing that book, she immersed herself in the Bible that she knew very well and made a list of all of the requirements that were imposed upon women in the Bible and closely as possible tried to live them so she could get a feel for, for, for the women of the Bible. She has one of her podcasts where she talks about developing this book that is absolutely hilarious. Uh, she didn't do all of it for a year. For example, she says that one of calling her husband master lasted one week. And the reference to going up on the roof was one that had escaped me. Apparently, it's in Leviticus that a woman who is um, acting as a scold or, or, or whatever uh, has got to do penance, including being on the roof of her home. Uh, that lasted for a month because, as she tells herself, she was kind of snarky and scoldy and talking back. So she wound up doing that a lot. And the picture of her sitting up on the roof of her home is, is I wish I had it up here. Her most recent book, Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. In that book, she pours out her heart of her love for scripture, and that's the one I'm reading now. In addition to writing books and blogging and tweeting, Rachel was a frequent speaker and preacher at churches and other gatherings where she would engage scripture as a living, loving, and forgiving gift of God. I'd encourage you to go to YouTube Look her up, and you will find and hear many of these public appearances, her sermons, her talks, um, just her fun things, and her serious ones. Here are some of the things you'll find there and in her books, just a few, to give you a flavor. Quote, the Bible should be a conversation starter and not a conversation ender. It's not a blueprint. If it was, we'd have nothing to talk about. Close quote. In response to being asked, who is your congregation? And recall, she's a layperson, not ordained. She's responded, those in faith transition, those in between, to be their companion, to walk with them. She was writing in her words, quote, for the judged and the confused, because she had been both. Quote, Christianity isn't meant to simply be believed. It's meant to be lived, shared, eaten, spoken, and enacted in the presence of other people. And those are words we should have carved over every church door. Quote, my faith coalesced into a single tangible call. Repent, break bread, seek justice, love neighbor. Christianity seemed at once the simplest and most impossible thing in the world. And my favorite, but I believe really epitomizes Rachel's faith view. She says, the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners saved by grace, committed to tearing down walls, throwing open doors, and shouting, welcome. There is bread and wine. Come eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. 
An Episcopalian, Mrs. Evans left the Evangelical Church in 2014 because she said she was done trying to end the church's culture wars and she wanted to focus instead on building a new community among the church's refugees. Women who wanted to become ministers, gay Christians, and those who refused to choose between their intellectual integrity or their faith. Rachel Held Evans died last May. She was 37 years old. She died suddenly after a very brief illness. In addition to her loving husband, she's survived by a three-year-old boy and a girl who's just about one years old. With her death, we lost a powerful voice for doubting and imagining and explaining and debating Scripture's mysteries. We lost a powerful voice for confronting the brand of evangelical faith that works to exclude, that works to build walls instead of bridges. We lost a voice that was for substituting in the stead a faith that admits of doubt. Her last blog post was last Ash Wednesday, March 6th, and here's what she said, maybe presciently. Whether you are a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic or a so-called nun, Mrs. Evans wrote, you know this truth deep in your bones. Remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. Death is a part of life. My prayer for you this season is that you make time to celebrate that reality and to grieve that reality, and that you will know you are not alone. So what makes her a saint? If I'm right that a saint is someone who teaches us by word or deed or both who we are and what we can do in the world for God and for each other, that a saint is someone who brings their God by whatever name they chose to call their God into their everyday lives, and bring their everyday lives to their God, then Rachel was a saint and is a saint. She was, by her own admission, snarky. She was, by her own admission, a doubter. She was, by her own admission, a questioner of authority. She was definitely not a company woman. And with her words and her life, she gave me permission to doubt and to question and she gave me the directions to meet those doubts and questions in a living God. And that, in my book, qualifies one for sainthood. Amen.